If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Luke 23. Luke 23. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. We will finish up Luke 23 this this morning. Uh, looking at verses 50 through 56. I know that most of you don't care, but it's almost time for postseason baseball. Does anyone care about baseball? All right. I care about baseball. And, and the Cubs have a chance to do something, maybe. So that's even more exciting. This is the year. Um, as a famous baseball player, Yogi Berra, who recently died, he was a Yankees baseball player and later a, a manager. Uh, he passed away recently at the age of 90. Um, beyond baseball, he was best known for quotes called yogiisms. Have you ever heard any of these? Yogi Berra quotes. Here's some of them. He would say things like, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. It's terrible, isn't it? Uh, you can observe a lot ju- by just watching. One of my favorites, it's like deja vu all over again. Uh, he says, no one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. No one likes these. I'm get- This is like, I didn't say these things, so I guess I don't have to feel bad that no one's laughing. Uh, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Here's one, uh, you've probably said this and you didn't even know that Yogi Berra coined this phrase, which is, it, it ain't over till it's over. You ever heard that one? That was Yogi Berra. He was the first one that said that. It ain't over till it's over. And that makes sense for baseball. Let me encourage you to watch postseason baseball. It's, it's awesome. It's the one sport where you can't get beat by the clock. You always, no matter how many runs you're down, if you have an out left in the ninth inning, you could be down 20 runs and there's still a chance that you could win. Uh, that's why you should never leave a baseball game early, because it ain't over till it's over. Even though a game might look like it's it's over, you know, there's there's no hope for a comeback. There's there's always this chance that 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 you might rally. Last week we we looked at Jesus's death on the cross, and it, it's like a baseball game that you're 20 runs down. It, there's no ray of hope. It, it looks like Jesus has has breathed his last. And in the minds of his, his followers, he has, he has died and everything is apparently over. There's, there's no hope left. And yet even in the midst of this, we see some faithful disciples, some faithful followers of Christ who, who continue to hold firm to their faith, whatever it was in that moment, even in this darkest hour. And they stand for us now as, as witnesses, witnesses to the reality of the death and the burial of Jesus, but also witnesses to what true faith looks like for disciples of Jesus. So there, there are witnesses to the, the fact of Jesus' death and burial, and there are witnesses to the, to the faith of true disciples. It's, these people are Joseph of Arimathea, or Arimathea, however you want to pronounce it, and then the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, these these two uh, group, this group and this individual, they are there. They sort of remain on the stage. Everyone else has left the scene, and they are there, and they are calling to us to, to believe. They're showing us what it looks like to remain faithful even in the midst of difficulty. So we could summarize the big idea of this passage, I think, by saying that the burial of Jesus calls us to believe in and follow after him. We're thinking about the burial of Jesus. What does the burial of Jesus do? It calls us to believe in and follow after him. 
Let's read these verses in Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. Luke writes this for us. And there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So the burial of Jesus calls us to believe in and follow after him. If you were to turn back to the first four verses of the book of Luke, we'd be, you would be reminded that Luke talks about eyewitnesses of Jesus. And he talks about part of the reason he's writing, his desire in writing, is to give an orderly account of things for this guy Theophilus that he's writing to, and ultimately also for us by extension, that we would have certainty about the things that he is going to teach us. That's one of, of, of Luke's main purposes, that we would have certainty and I think this, this testimony here in verses 50 through 56 stands as a major witness to give us certainty. So, so we find the first thing as we look about at this situation is that Joseph of Arimathea and these women are witnesses to the fact of Jesus' death and burial. So you could put that first, witnesses to the fact of Jesus' death and burial. These witnesses are important because something amazing is going to happen, remember. We, we know the end of the story. We know about the resurrection. But they sort of stand as these witnesses. They're, they're kind of like those that are chosen to a, assist a magician when he's going to do a magic trick, right? So if you've ever been in a, to a magic show and they bring folks up on stage, a member of the audience is called to come up and he's inspect the deck, right? Make sure this is a normal deck of cards. Or maybe the magician's going to wear a blindfold and he says, you know, make sure that I can't see through this blindfold the the point being that the magician wants to do his best to prove that that everything is ordinary so that when he or she does something extraordinary it it has that sort of wow factor that we know it's not uh, it's not rigged and so joseph and the women are kind of like the people that are inspecting the deck as it were they they testify that there's nothing up anyone's sleeves this isn't some sort of trick of course in magic it it it, it is a trick it's not a miracle the difference between magic and a miracle is that magic is based on deception and it makes something appear supernatural. But this is a miracle and a miracle is based on truth and something actually supernatural happens here. And so we find Joseph of Arimathea in verse 50. Joseph, he's found in all four gospel accounts, Joseph of Arimathea, in this exact situation. And this is the only place that he's found in Scripture or in church history. We know nothing else about him except for what the gospel writers tell us. Um, John tells us that he had been a, a secret disciple of Jesus. He had followed Jesus but hadn't been public. He, he hadn't publicly come forward as someone who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet he's here in Jerusalem, like Esther, for such a time as this. This is his moment. And when the hour came for him to take his stand as a disciple of Christ, he, he boldly walked into the light and identified himself as such. Joseph 
if we're thinking about witnesses to things, Joseph in that day and time would have been an ideal witness. He has all the marks of being someone that is trustworthy, and that's part of the reason I think that Luke puts him forward. First, he was a man of position and power. This is not just some joker. He's a member of the council. He's a Jewish elder. Um, he was well-respected in the Jewish community. And he even has connections with Rome as he goes to, to Pilate. His place of power allows him to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. That's something that none of the disciples could have done. No one in Jesus' family could have done that. But Joseph, because of his power and his position, is able to walk up to Pilate and say, Can I have the body of Jesus? He has position and power. Next, he has, he has financial means. He owned a tomb, which would indicate that he had sufficient funds to afford this kind of a luxury. Mark makes it very clear. He just says he was rich. So Joseph of Arimathea was rich. But his, and his wealth, in some sense, in that day, makes him a reliable witness. But it also makes him the fulfillment of prophecy. Because you remember in Isaiah 53, 9, we read, His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So normally the, bodies of a, a crucified, the body of a crucified person was thrown into a, a common grave. So Jesus should have been in a grave with the wicked. He was assigned that grave. But he was with a rich man in his death because Joseph comes and takes the body. Fulfills that prophecy. So Joseph's a, a man of position and power, a man of financial means. He's also a man of integrity. Luke describes him, he says that he was um, a good and a righteous man. He's, he's an upright man. He's above reproach. You see that as he disagrees with the, the council, how they have decided to condemn and to crucify Jesus. And so he steps forward finally and he, he makes that known. He could, have, he could have just declined to vote. He could have instead just sort of stayed in the background. But he stands up and he says, this is not right. So we see that he's a man that, that couldn't be bought, is not persuaded. He, and so by, by extension, we would say he's not someone that's going to try to deceive other people. He's good. He's righteous. Luke does this. He brings out these people that are seen as reliable witnesses. And, and it's funny. It's interesting that Joseph sort of mirrors two other individuals from the very beginning of his gospel, Simeon and Anna. And they're very similar. So Simeon is brought forward as, a, as an older, respected Jewish man who was in the temple. And Luke 2.25 says this of Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, just like it says here that Joseph was good and righteous, waiting for the consolation of Israel, it says of Simeon. And here of Joseph, what's it say? He was looking for the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is a reliable witness, and, and when they bring Jesus to the temple, Simeon holds him up and says, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And Anna, in that same situation, it says of her in Luke 2, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at, the very, that, at that very hour when Jesus was being dedicated, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All these phrases sort of Luke's bookending. It's the waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Israel, looking for the kingdom of God. These are individuals who were respected individuals, Jewish people who were looking for the Messiah, and they found him in Jesus. Joseph then stands as this, this credible witness to the truthfulness of what 
happened on this, the last day of Jesus' life. He attests to the fact that Jesus truly was dead. He takes an active role in taking down the body. Surely he had help. Um, he was a man of means and had some servants probably that would help him, but he was there taking the body down, wrapping it in a linen shroud, transporting this body to his tomb. And this all had to be done fairly quickly because verse 40 says it, 40, 54 says it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So on the Sabbath, of course, no work is to be done. You can't do any work. We might think that they have plenty of time, right? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's only Friday night. Sabbath doesn't start till Saturday. But according to the way the Jewish people reckon days, a day ended when the, when the sun went down and, be, and the next day then began at that moment. So this day is about to end and the new day begins as the stars show up in the sky. So Sabbath is, is coming very quickly. We saw that Jesus breathed his last at three o'clock. And so there's a, about six o'clock is when they would say that Sabbath started. So there's a very short period of time that they need to do things. They have to act fairly quickly to get Jesus down. They have him placed in the tomb. It seems like maybe they didn't have enough time to fully prepare him for burial because we see that the women later on are going to bring the spices um, and the ointments to properly bury Jesus. We mentioned those women. Think about these, these women. Joseph is a witness, a reliable one. The women are unlikely witnesses in that day and age. They would not be as well respected as Joseph, but I love that Luke includes them. And he says they were there and they witnessed these things. They're unlikely. They're the women of verse 49, all his acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee. They're mentioned there. And these are probably the same women from Luke 8. In Luke 8, there were those that provided for Jesus out of their means. Uh, some of them are mentioned by name, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna and and others it says some that are unnamed I think we should note these names Mary Magdalene Joanna Susanna and others that we do not know these these women are heroes of our faith we should we should lift them up we should not forget them they they are there they are they are faithful to Jesus to the very end you know, sometimes we think it's the people that are loud and proclaim how faithful they're going to be. The, the Peters, those are the ones that are going to stick around. But it's the women, some of whom are not even named, and they're not given names here. They are the ones that remain faithful to Jesus to the bitter end. And I think we should notice, too, they're placed alongside Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph is, is a man who's rich. He has social standing. He's from a respected town in Arimathea. And then we have these women. These women who are, uh, who are poor probably. They're despised in society. And they're from Galilee. <laughs> Remember um, what, uh, is it Nathan? Nathaniel. What Nathaniel says about Galilee, can anything, or no, that's about Nazareth, I'm sorry. But, but that region is, is the same sort of idea that, that Galilee is a place, who are these guys? They come from Galilee. And who are these women? And it's just a reminder that this is what Jesus does. He unites all people. There is no division in the body of Christ. He comes for rich. He comes for poor. He comes for men and women. And all of his, everyone is invited to be a follower of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are useful to him. 
We should never despise anyone who is God's child and think that they are not useful. And we should also not despise ourselves and think that God can't use us for whatever reason it might be. These women were faithful to the bitter end. And maybe you're someone who's in the background and you're just sort of one of his acquaintances or one of the people that are at a distance or you fade to the background oftentimes. You are useful to Christ. Joseph of Arimathea had means and he used them. The women didn't have means, but they were faithful just as he was. And so we all need to recognize our role in the kingdom of God and that we are all welcome to to be used by him in great ways. I think these women will be honored for all eternity for what they did for Christ, for their participation in his burial. Verse 55 actually tells us that they very they're very important in light of what's going to happen on the first day of the week. So in light of the resurrection, it's very important what they see. They see two things. First, they saw the tomb. They saw the tomb. So when they arrive on the morning of the resurrection, we can't say they went to the wrong place. That they went to the wrong tomb. And so that you, you know that somehow they show up and they find this one tomb where there's no one buried and they say they say, "Oh, Jesus rose from the dead, but actually he's buried in the tomb next door or something like that. No, they were there. They saw him placed in that specific tomb and they knew where to go that that next morning to with these spices. So they saw the tomb. And second, they saw how his body was laid. So they see Jesus wrapped in this shroud. They see his lifeless body that's taken into the tomb. And, and they recognize that there's not some sort of switcheroo that happens here, you know. It, it, it's, it's, it's not some sort of trick he, and it's not that he and he's not still alive. They watch the lifeless body of Jesus wrapped in the shroud, placed in the tomb. They see it happen and they watch the stone rolled in front of them. They stand as witnesses to these things. Joseph of Arimathea, the women from Galilee, are witnesses to the fact of Jesus' death that he truly died and that he was buried. And so I think we should just take a step back and realize what does Luke want us to take from this? Certainty. He wants us to have certainty, to be sure of what happened. They, these, these witnesses affirm that what we hold to be the cornerstone of our faith, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that it is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It is, it's true. We read it and we say it with certainty in the Apostles' Creed. We say, he was buried. And that's important to our faith. And it really truly happened and joseph and the women stand as witnesses that it really did happen so they are witnesses to the fact of the death and the burial of jesus but they also are witnesses to the faith of all true disciples i don't think that luke's only point is to show that these things actually happened but also to give us examples of the faith that we should have as disciples what what does faith look like and what does it look like in the midst of darkness when there is no hope when everything's falling apart? How do we follow Christ in general? And then how do we follow Christ when it seems like all the enemies around us are winning? Let's just look at some characteristics of Joseph and the women from Galilee that help us to see how what faith looks like. These are going to be probably more in seed form, and so I just invite you to, to meditate on them this week. Um, but let me give you some of these. The first would be we... What faith looks like, these would be we statements. We boldly stand against opposition. If we are faithful followers of Christ, we boldly stand against opposition. So we see this with Joseph. 
When this mock trial concludes, they condemn Christ to be crucified. Everyone around him is agreeing, um, or at least they're not willing to, to speak up against it. And here comes Joseph, who had been a secret disciple, and he steps forward. He says, this is not right. And he, he puts himself out there and says, I want the body of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. does it for everyone to see. There's another guy with him, according to John. Do you remember who's with Joseph of Arimathea? Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus from John 3, who was also came at night in secret to follow Jesus. And now these guys sort of link arms and say, we, we can't let him be buried in disgrace because we are followers of his. And they come out. Nicodemus, um, John tells us, was the guy who brought the spices, uh, over 75 pounds of spices to bury Jesus. I think we could simply say, when we think about we boldly stand against opposition, we should say that a disciple of Jesus can't remain secret forever. A true disciple of Jesus will not remain secret forever. Now, there's some debate within missions, and I'm not really trying to refer to that. So if that's where your mind goes about secret disciples, I'm not really trying to address that. I'm not smart enough to address that. But simply saying that there's a public profession of Christ in the midst of a, a culture that would oppose him that is part of being a true Christian. Even, I think, as we think about the burial of Jesus, isn't it right to say that true followers of Jesus will be baptized, will identify with Christ publicly, identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's part of what being a Christian is, is saying, I am with Christ in the midst of opposition. And one of the clear ways that Jesus gives us to do that is to be baptized, to stand up and say, this is who I am. As Christians, there are times when we must stand against those who condemn Jesus, those who are opposed to Jesus. Now, I think we could apply this to moral issues. We could. Um, we should stand for the truth of Christ as it relates to things like, like abortion or racism or the exploitation of the poor, um, over our disgust over human trafficking or the treatment of women or so-called sexual liberation. We should stand against these things as followers of Christ and stand for what is true. But I think specifically what Joseph of Arimathea is calling us to stand against is people who would deny that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We are to stand and say Jesus is the, the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to come to the Father except through him. If we're going to stand for that, that's going to take some boldness, isn't it? And in our culture, in our day, where there's many ways to God, it takes boldness to stand against those who are opposed to Christ. And so, uh, true faith, we, we, we boldly stand in the midst of opposition. The second thing about how we walk in faith, I would say, is we firmly stand when others flee. We firmly stand when others flee. We see this with the women from Galilee. All the other disciples of Jesus have left, and they remain. Everyone else runs away, but they stood by Jesus when it looked like everything was over. And so, too, we must stand, even when those who call themselves followers of Christ fall away or flee from him. The parable of the sower is, is very real, isn't it? That we see those who are a seed and maybe they show some life, but Satan comes and snatches them away before that life really shows itself. There are others who have shallow roots, and when temptation comes, when opposition comes, when difficulty comes in the Christian life, they fall away. 
There are some who appear to be strong Christians, but then the weeds of the world come in. The cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world come, and they choke that seed, and they show that there is no true life there. And so there are many who would call themselves Christians who flee and who fall away. And the women here stand and they say, stand firm. When it looks like all hope is gone, stand firm. Don't, don't fall away from Christ. Remain faithful all the way to the bitter end. Isn't it interesting? They're always noted as a group. It's not individuals, is it? I think there were times when it was difficult for them and they wanted to maybe scrap it all. It's hard. But you think about that. Maybe maybe Mary felt like she just couldn't handle the difficult situation anymore, that standing with Christ was too hard. And her friends, Joanna and Susanna, come alongside and they say, No, don't don't you remember who we were before Christ? We've got to stay faithful. We've got to remain true. We we gotta what he says is, is true. He has the words of life and they call her to to remain faithful. They bolstered her faith. And that's why we need the church. We need small groups. That's why we don't uh, we don't exist as solo Christians, but we are together affirming things. We read the Apostles' Creed together, in this, and we, we all say, yes, that's what we believe. We, we need these groups. That's why we're, we're having this gathering for men, not just so we can hang out and have a good time. I hope we do. But part of it is so we can build relationships that would say, let's stand firm. Let's not fall away. Let's remain true to Christ, that we would have those kind of people in our lives. You even see it with Joseph. That he links arm with, arms with Nicodemus. He needs someone with him to, to help him. We cannot stand on our own. We need help. If we're going to firmly stand when others flee, then we need to be bound together with brothers and sisters in Christ. So faith boldly stands in the midst of opposition. It firmly stands when others flee. We accept the costs. Jesus has talked about the cost of discipleship so much, hasn't he? If we're going to follow him, we must accept the cost. What would this have cost Joseph? Could have cost him his spot on the council, his place of respect in society. It cost him money, cost him a tomb. Well, he got it back. What about the women? They had already left everything to follow Jesus, but now they're standing with a condemned criminal. It could have cost them their lives. But they accept whatever those costs are. And following Jesus will always cost us something. Jesus says, I, I, I don't want part of you. I want all of you. You follow me with your, all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It could cost us a promotion at your job or maybe just the job that you want. It could cost you in relationships. It could cost you money, possessions. It could cost us our lives, couldn't it, to stand for Christ. But those who are faithful to Christ accept whatever those costs are and remain true. We accept the costs. We follow Joseph in that we set our eyes on the kingdom. We set our eyes on the kingdom. I love that that phrase about him. It says he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. You know, I think Joseph had probably been looking for a literal kingdom, just like so many were. They expected Jesus to come and to reign in some specific way, in some tangible way. But he must have finally come to see that Christ was a king like no other and that his kingdom was was different. 
that it was here present with him. And it was also coming, that it was already now and yet still coming. And so if we are to follow Christ in faith, then we are setting our eyes on that kingdom where we see that, that we are to proclaim his message of love in word and in deed even now, that that's part of what being in the kingdom is, but also that there's a day coming when, when he will truly reign, when there, there will be no more suffering, when no one will ever be buried again. Isn't that interesting to think about? And Christ will lead us as, as our king who was crucified, buried, and risen again. We set our eyes on the kingdom. That's what we're looking for, both here, now, and in the future. True faith, we, we honor Christ as king. We honor Christ as king. The way that they buried Jesus was not as a common criminal, was it? They buried him with honor. They lifted him up as someone who was worthy of the utmost respect in his death. He was honored by his followers because they knew who he was. And so we too would submit to Christ as king. We would worship him as such. We would live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Sometimes we live like we're honoring other kings. Like we're honoring ourselves as king. We serve sin rather than Christ. Or we become slaves to sin rather than slaves to Christ. But if we are followers of him, we'll honor him. We'll lift him up as king and let him rule and reign in our lives. So what have we said about faith? We've said it it stands. Um, we, we boldly stand against opposition. We firmly stand when others flee. We accept the costs of following him. We set our eyes on the kingdom. We honor Christ as king. Let me just give you one more to think on. We love Christ as our Savior. We love Christ as our Savior. As simple as these these words are, isn't there such depth of emotion and care that you can sort of draw from what's happening here? Those of you who have experienced the death of a loved one, there is something unique about those moments of caring, even for their their physical body after they have passed, and that that, that is that's a sacred thing, as it were. And as as Joseph comes and as the women are there, there's there's such love for Jesus and, and respect for who he was, and it's just a very poignant scene. I think about you, you see the women standing there watching his body being laid. What were they thinking? What was going through their minds? What are Joseph and Nicodemus? What's what's going on in them? We love Christ as our, our Savior because it's it's the body of, of Jesus crucified as we think about that. We know the resurrection is coming, but it's the broken, dead body of Jesus that gives us life. That's how he is our Savior. That's how he, he opens up the way for us to have eternal life is through his, his death. And so as we honor him as, as Savior, if I could say it this way, there's a love for the broken body of Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to say that that can that can turn into something strange, can't it? That we would worship some sort of physical form and icons or whatever. That could 
be strange. But yet, as I think we look and as we would, with our mind's eye, think about the broken, crushed body of Christ, we would see in that that he was crushed for us. He was broken for us. And we have a love for him as the Savior who who was beaten and crucified for our sins. Because that's what our sins cost Jesus. The wages, the payment for sin is death. And Luke has emphasized all throughout that Jesus is so innocent, never did anything wrong. And so as he dies, as his body is broken, he is broken for us. He's crucified for us. He takes the penalty for our sin. It calls us to come to him in faith, to believe that that's why he died. He was broken so that we might have new life. Paid the penalty for my sin and yours. It's a good place to end before we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? That we can look on the sacrifice of Christ, even in these symbols, in the shed blood, in, in the cup, and in the, the, the broken bread, which symbolizes his, his broken, lifeless body. And as, I, as we think on these things, there's so many different angles that we can come to the Lord's Supper with. I'd just like us to come to it this morning with with love for Christ, love for the broken body of Christ, love for the shed blood of Christ, that he shows us love and we love him because he first loved us and laid down his life for us. He was buried for us. As I was thinking about the the symbolism of baptism of even being, being buried and then risen again, that there's a sense in which we are we are born buried. We are born already in the tomb. We are born dead. I was reading this morning in Ephesians 2, and it says in Ephesians 2 that that we you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's how we are born. But God, verse 4 says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's remember Christ this morning. Let's remember his broken body and his shed blood.